0: Hello and welcome to episode 29 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps.
1: Stan, it's uh it's a hot one over here. Like Seven inches from the midday sun, my friend.
0: Same here, brother. I had to turn off my AC for recording so it wouldn't hum in the apartment, and I may have to take my shirt off before we're done recording because it is getting hot.
2: Is that? Hachi-machi. Are you so close to the sun because you live in the Mile High City? Mile High, baby. I'm like
1: 5,280 feet towards that sun. Mm. It's only 93 million miles away, but I feel it.
2: Yep.
0: Also with me here in Chicago, it's The Godfather dave harberger
2: i feel like we did bad things this week we did did bad things. i'm in a
1: bad bad man well none
0: of my opponents swore at me so it can't be that bad
1: Mm. i had an opponent laugh at me because i messed up so badly
0: (laughs) zach is on vacation this week and he threatened to strike if we ever recorded this topic when he was here so when the warden's away the spikes will play broken decks (laughs)
2: <laughs>
0: On this week's show, we break down the results from GP Dallas and SCG Pittsburgh's Team Modern tournament, our first major event results with Modern Horizons in the format. After that, we're diving deep into the most degenerate thing we've seen since Splinter Cell, Eldrazi Winter, and Vengevine combined. It's Hogak Vine. Then we wind down with a discussion about randomness in games. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it banana? But first, let's housekeep. As always, we're excited to shout out our new patron this week, Odin Egan. Cool name, cool person. And if you'd like to support the podcast, check us out at patreon.com slash thedivedown.
2: So we're approaching the $250 stretch goal for playmats. Um, we're also starting to share out some designs for buttons and stickers and everything like that with people on our Patreon. We will likely post those again to public posts so people can have a look at the, the, the cool swag that we're offering to, uh, people who join up. So if you want some fun stuff, check it out. Patreon.com slash the dive down. Yeah,
1: Dave, uh, it's really nice having a professional graphic designer on the payroll here at the Dive Down, so your stuff's looking awesome. I can't wait to get it produced. You can pay me in Snapcaster Mages. I've decided.
0: (laughs) Wait, there's a payroll?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, pretend I didn't didn't mention that. (laughs) You didn't
0: get my (laughs) W9? All right, now we're going to jump over to Shane at the news desk to take us through the SCG Pittsburgh Team Modern Open and... GP Dallas Fort Worth.
1: All right, yeah. This weekend we had the first major paper tournaments with uh, Modern Horizons cards in the format, and it was kind of a wild one. Sort of. I think some things went what to how people expected them. In some ways, they did not go how people were expecting. So we'll break this all down here. You know, under the shadow of all the Hogak hype, I think we saw players descend on these different tournaments this week. We had you know we had the solo tournament, we had the team tournament and we really wanted to see how much of the format had rotated and changed in some way over the last few weeks since uh, Horizons released. And so we saw a little bit of a preview of this at the MCQ at Dallas-Fort Worth on Friday. So this tournament was won by Hogak, and Hogak also won the MITGO Modern Challenge this week, I believe, as well. So we had the, the top 64. From the MCQ at Dallas Fort Worth, and Hogak was over twenty-five percent of that top sixty-four meta. It even edged out other at uh, so there was eighteen Hogak decks. There were twelve other decks, and then after that was is it Phoenix with ten? Wow, people love Faithful looting still. <laughs> Here it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the only other decks with more than a couple in the sample were Humans, Eldrazi, Tron, Burn, and Mono Red Phoenix. And you saw a little bit of John, a little bit of Connor's Company, some Affinity, and the Sahili Rai combo all had a couple decks in the top 64 as well.
0: Is it just me, or did we get more data from the MCQ than the actual main
2: event? Oh, boy. I don't even know what to think about this. It was kind of like if you didn't watch it, you missed it, which is too bad.
1: yeah. We'll. I'm sure we'll talk about kind of the coverage that we saw at Dallas-Fort Worth from Channel Fireball, but the text coverage that they posted, even on Twitter, like it's like even if you were paying attention to Twitter, it's like they had what, what, three or four tweets during
2: the whole weekend? It was four tweets the whole weekend. What? How? It was kind of disappointing. You guys, you're
1: killing us. I'm really hoping that we're going to see a, a Toby Hanky article come out of this, but mm, that'll be a change of pace from what we saw from the text coverage.
2: It's so wild to think about the first tournament that happens after a brand new pro- flagship product comes out. All this anticipation, there's a there's a massive hype deck associated with the day. And then, you know, the video coverage was good, was very good. They had good hosts and it was fun to watch and everything with mm-hmm. a couple of notable technical exceptions. And then, uh, yeah, nothing to help support if you were not able to sit in front of the stream all day. But yep. I guess you just can't have it all.
1: So let's uh get into day 1 of Dallas Fort Worth uh first at the GP main event. So did you guys get a chance to
2: see any of this? I mean, I watched a lot of the first couple of rounds. Uh got to see Riley on for a while, just you know, our our new best friend and um enjoy yeah. enjoy some of his casting. We got a little shout out on the stream which was which was very very nice. So so we appreciate uh him taking the time to do that. Reed Duke kind of looked at him with a blank expression when he mentioned the time town. <laughs> so we're hoping to change that sometime in the future. So get at get it get yeah. in our DMs, Reed, if you're listening now. Reed, Reed Duke was yes, this is also my favorite Magic the Gathering podcast <laughs> focusing on the modern format for casual spikes. Right. right. Um so I got to see the first round. I got to see Blue Eye Control versus Slivers and Blue uh Red Phoenix versus Team or Snow. Those are both very cool decks to see. The blue eye control versus slivers matchup was really fun to just see a traditional control deck against the new kind of juiced-up slivers from Modern Horizons, and getting to see Teamer Snow very early in it was was really cool to see somebody trying to build around the snow, uh, snow-covered cards.
0: Yeah, round one was really all about the tribes that you know we sort of anticipated getting a push from the new set, even if we couldn't really see them get represented later into the tournament. I'm glad that coverage spent a little bit of time showcasing you know, a lot of the fun new strategies that people are keeping their eye on with the release of Modern Horizons. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was of the opinion or of the belief at least that, you know, Hogak wasn't all over the day one coverage, but then when I was rewatching what they actually cast, Hogak was on quite a bit simply because it was so prevalent at the top tables. And I think people also, they did want to see it. They did want to showcase that it was happening and there were a lot of people on it and some popular players on it. You know, one of the things I thought was
2: weird, and you mentioned this too, Dave, was seeing Dana Fisher on Dredge. Yeah, I kind of loved it. I was like, good good for you. Move on. Try something else. You know, well, don't sure, have to play elves yeah, all there's the time.
0: A, I'm sure she's collected a bunch of store credit, probably mowing down locals with elves, and eventually you got to spend that store credit on something.
1: Yeah, one of the things I thought was interesting in the like round five of day one, there was this pretty brutal matchup of Burn versus Hogak, and the Burn player just watched Hogak steamroll them with like this very much like this is fine type face in two straight games, and I was like, oh, this is where we're at now, where you know Burn's not even fast enough to to really
2: challenge Hogak when it gets going. Yeah, although I think a bunch of twi- people on Twitter have the exact opposite take there, which is that. I sure. saw a bunch of people were piloting burn this weekend, in different events saying that they were just mowing down Hogak all over the place. So mm-hmm. yeah, um,
1: I, I got ran over by it. Same. Yeah. So one of the things uh, in the round six, we saw in a backup match, we saw Tom, the boss, Ross, he was piloting Hogak this weekend versus blue white control. And I think we saw Hogak versus blue white control, like maybe seven or eight times in the Swiss, even like in main and backup matches. It was a really popular matchup this weekend. And he was just hard casting Venge Vines and other creatures through multiple Rest in Pieces and paths from the blue-white control opponent. Really, again, showing that yeah, you have to have something to go along with your hate cards uh, as being necessary when decks like Hogak have multiple plans, which we'll get into in our, in our dive down this week. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I ran into that same problem. In one of my league uh, league matches, just to spoil kind of a little bit, I was playing the mirror and stuck a ley line early, but my opponent was just able to hard cast two Venge Vines while I was stuck on mana and had no creatures out to cast my Hog Axe that were in my hand. And
2: so they just beat me down with you know a couple of hasty four or threes. I mean, yeah, sometimes a Canyon Minotaur is good enough, I guess, <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> whatever the four, three, four, four, four is in red.
1: So we had some undefeated decks at the end of day one. Uh, Dave, you were looking for those, I remember. Yeah,
2: I mean there were there were four undefeated decks: three nine O's and an eight O and one. So I'll start with the eight O and one, and that was Daniel Wong on taking turns. And yes. uh, you know, good for him. No no spoilers, but he continued to have a good day after after day one. Um, the other three decks, he not uh, Daniel wasn't running anything new in the taking turns deck, from what I could tell. By the way, either now there aren't. Um, deck list posted, so it's, it's kind of tough to tell exactly what everybody was doing all the time, but um, we had more information about the other three undefeated decks. Um, EldraziTron was running, of course, the Wishkarn package as well, along with all the kind of regular Tron stuff. That was 9-0. Burn was also 9-0. The interesting thing about the Burn deck that went 9-0 was that it was running uh, Light Up the Stage, which you don't always see in the the Boros Burn decks, but you often do see in the Mono Red Phoenix decks. Uh, Light Up the Stage seems to come come in and out of Boros Burn, depending on uh, kind of player choice. But the new spicy deck that was at the top of the Undefeated's at the end of Day 1 was Grixis Urza Sword. And why was it Grixis? Because of our new little friend... Urza's new best friend, it's not Karn, it's Goblin Engineer. I just love the yeah. idea of a buddy a buddy picture with uh, with uh, with Urza and Goblin Engineer trying to solve some quest.
1: Like the little yellow dog behind the spike dog, the big gray dog in the old Warner
2: Brothers cartoons. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, oh, where are we going, Urza? Where are we going, Urza?
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and him just being like, easy, Engineer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this Grixis Sword deck is kind of what you would imagine it would be. It is the Thopter Sword plus War of Invention deck that uses Urza and Goblin Engineer to kind of juice up, getting the right pieces, abusing mana, tapping things for extra mana, all that kind of stuff. It's um, it's a deck that showed up both here at Dallas and also at um, at the the SCG team event. So uh, I think it's a deck that we'll be seeing around for a long time. And it was definitely the one at the end of day one that had the most uh, new cards in it.
1: Yeah. I actually played against two different goblin engineer decks in the leagues. I played this past week and weekend, and it seems like it's a pretty cool card when you really get it going. If you have time to untap with it and you know, I saw it usually they're playing some snow basics and they're casting some pretty easily replaceable artifacts like the, uh, What's that the astrolabe Arkham's astrolabe and, I think yeah yeah astro yeah Arkham's astrolabe, and so it, it seems like it, there's definitely an engine there, and I think when people start experimenting with it even more, it's going to become a little bit
2: more ironed out and perhaps more powerful, yeah, but from the from what it looks like at the end of day one, there weren't that many modern horizons cards bubbling up to the top, and even just randomly from the feature matches that I got to see, they didn't have a ton of new cards they had they had some or they were often paired against. Um, decks that were more uh, expected with a couple of tweaks. But yeah. I think it really turned out to be kind of a, a head fake once we saw the day two meta. <laughs> yeah. So all
1: right. So moving on to day two, we so we got the day two analysis kind of you know mid-day two when we started actually getting these metagame breakdowns and things like that. So we really saw that Horizons had a pretty substantial impact on the results of the GP, at least. And so much like the meta represented in the MCQ that we got some kind of preliminary data at, we saw Hogak close to 20% of the meta game at day two. So we had 41 decks in day two. And supposedly from what we heard in conversation, I don't know where this number actually came from, but it had a day one conversion rate of 33%. So that's pretty substantial. That's a really
2: high conversion rate for a, for a single deck, correct? Yeah. I mean, that number is kind of hearsay. But it's interesting. Uh, we couldn't find a source for it. But the thing that's interesting about it is that if that is true, then it's likely that Hogak was around ten percent of the field going into day one because of the convert. You know, forty-one with a conversion rate of thirty-three percent means there were. You know, the inverse of that is blah 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 blah. There's usually about twelve hundred people in in a, a Grand Prix. I think that's right around where this one was, and so it's around one hundred and twenty Hogak pilots day one. Which is a lot for a new deck. For a deck that was um, fringy before two weeks ago, let's let's say. I mean, Bridgevine was was kind of a fringe deck before these cards.
1: So what was interesting is I first saw this pie chart graph of the day two minute game breakdown. It's like okay, it's not that bad. Like you know, you got a we got a we got a big Hogak piece and a bunch of like pretty decent looking pieces of other decks, and then you see this bar chart. And when you see a bar that's literally, you know, 2.25 times as long as the next bar below it, you're like, oh, yeah, I see a problem here. Because, you know, the next, the next ne- deck up was like humans, is it Phoenix, is something what looks like 16, 17 copies on day two. Yep. Yeah, just about. Yeah.
2: So not looking great here. So, and we should note too that isn't Phoenix got uh, a pretty powerful new new card as well in Aria of Flame as it's turning out. And so between those two decks, you know, that was what was that about 30% of the the meta that was uh, new new cards based between those. And, you know, we'll talk some more about the shared metagame, day two metagame of those two decks when we get to Pittsburgh as well.
1: Yeah, Dave, you mentioned earlier that it was interesting to see Hogak be at the top of the beta only a couple of weeks after this deck sort of showed up, and that's something that Riley mentioned the other week, too, is the deck's not even 100% tuned yet, and it's just effortlessly, apparently, showing up so frequently.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say effortlessly, as we kind of no, discovered no. <laughs> by playing the game or the deck ourselves, but yeah, it certainly got powerful very fast and and adopted very quickly. Yeah.
1: I liked a lot of the day two coverage for sure. Like I liked that they started off with a uh, showing a really old modern staple in Merfolk versus the new hotness of Hogak and the eight and one bracket and Merfolk getting force of negation really seemed to have helped the deck quite a bit. And, and in that round though, <laughs> we saw Yuta Takahashi, which is a, a, he's a famous fairies player playing
2: Hogak. So, Truly a dire situation we find ourselves in. Alarm bells going off. Yeah. It's like when Caleb Shearer picked up uh, Is It Phoenix a few months back and we all went, (gasps) (laughs) a different (laughs) blue-red (laughs) deck. And we had a a preview of the players in the
1: finals. Sorry for the spoilers. In uh, round 11 when Austin Bersovich on blue-white control played Paul uh, Coulier on Hogak. And one of the things I thought was really funny in day 2 was uh, round 12 I don't know if either of you all saw this but we saw Mono-Red Prison at 10 and 1 versus uh Red prowess and the player who was playing Mono-Red Prison uh, Carlo Negrete he had apparently lost a bet and was forced to take Red Prison to the to the GP and just you know casually going 10-1 and then he stomped Red prowess as well so just
2: you know casual 11-1 with the deck he didn't even want to bring a yeah, casual top 32 there for sure, a top Probably. 64. Yeah, interesting. Um,
1: and then of course, we saw Tom Ross on Hogak versus Blue White Control around 13.
2: Um, game two, if you want to go it, back to that, and is it fair that Tom didn't Tom Ross like help design the set that Hogak <laughs> was in? And so now yeah, he's showing ex- up and just like stomping people with his mistake. <laughs>
1: Yeah, when you when you went when I was re-watching those rounds, there were plenty of people in the Twitch comments, which is, you know, never a really safe reading. No. But people just being like, Well, what how is he what's what wasn't he in the you know, wasn't he uh, working for Watsy? Why is he allowed to do this? Like, you know, didn't he have knowledge? And so that's a good question. Well, no, uh,
2: they, they they clarified the competitive rules a while ago because they have so many yeah. good personalities in-house that they said, We're gonna let our people start playing tournaments again. And I, I think it's fine. I was really just making a joke. i know
0: i think they also have some internal policy that prevents the designers who are allowed to play from knowing all of it right sam black mentioned something to this effect because he recently announced that he would be working to some capacity with r d and he's just going to see like a small snippet of some cards that he's going to help consult on and maybe that's what was going on with tom ross as well yeah
1: i mean in all honesty players like Tom Ross and Sam Black are, are better than 99.999% of the people like us who might complain about this. So they already have a substantial leg up on us in the competitive realm.
2: Right. You know where it comes from? Positive mindset. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no way, Dave. I don't think that's um, it at all.
1: But what I wanted to get to about this round was that in game two, you saw a really nice display of how the hog deck can grind out opponents. If they're given enough time and opportunity to just fight through a bunch of hate and fight through just a bunch of, uh, you know, removal and just continually fill the board with creatures. Did you just call it hog Hogak. He has is it been hog Which one is it? Uh, it's 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 hagak. I
0: think Shane pronounces it a little differently than the rest of us do.
1: I keep trying to
2: mix it up. I just want to confuse y'all. Hagak is this really delicious, like bread pocket you can you can get. It's filled with cheese and butter. It's good.
1: <laughs> do you mean a baboli Italian? Bread oh show? yeah, I
2: do.
0: <laughs> baboli.
1: But I think the best round of the day, of course, was when Daniel Wong at 11-2-1 was playing a win-and-end versus the company deck. And, of course, he wins it, gets taking turns into
2: the GP top eight. Mm-hmm.
1: Is that... That's not his first
2: top eight with taking turns,
1: is it? No, no, no. I don't, I don't believe so, no. But he gets it in there, which everyone, you know, crowd favorite. Yeah. Everyone wants to see Daniel Wong do well. Yeah. With his quad-sleeved amazing thing.
0: Right. So the winner was Austin Bersevich with Blue-White Control. And in second place, we had Hogak, piloted by Paul Coulier. Third place, we had Christopher Homan on Humans. Fourth place, another Blue-White Control deck. And then it was unclear to me when we were putting this episode together how the rest of the players fared, but the last four decks were Eldrazi Tron, Thopter Sword, Taking Turns, and another
1: Hogak deck. Yeah, I I mean, at that point, it's just like, you know, they made the quarterfinals. It's not really too important where they place there.
2: I mean, it's worth noting that one of them is Tom Ross, which we Hmm. did not say in the notes. Good point. So it's Tom Ross, Christopher Homan, Daniel Wong, Justin Porches, Anthony Petropoulos. 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 Oh, boy, sorry. Samuel Cook, Paul Coulier, Austin Bersevich
1: yeah congratulations to all those gentlemen for making the top 8 for Austin Bursevich for winning I mean blue white control is looking still like quite a good deck to take into to any given tournament if you understand the meta and know what you're doing with it certainly has answers to a lot of things and most importantly can play rest in peace yeah I think right.
0: that's a big part of it not only rest in peace but you get to play some main deck surgicals that you get to double up with your snapcaster mages I think the deck has mm-hmm. a lot of tools for the meta
1: all right so let's uh, move on to the SEG Team Open. So I honestly personally watched a lot more of the GP than the Team Open, although, although I was I was switching back and forth when there was some dead time in the GP. Uh, I just find the team tournaments to be a little bit harder watching, and I feel like I'm not getting quite as much in terms of perfect information. I mean, not that a GP is perfect, but you know, you're know you seeing the, the team tournament having an impact on the results. So you're looking to see... What's performing better, and and having three decks across
2: three people certainly kind of muddies those waters. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's it's harder watching for us. Maybe more fun for casual for uh, casual observers, but
1: yeah, and SEG has you know different broadcasters, different production qualities. so it's it's nice to be able to to switch back and forth for sure. So one of the things I noticed was that a lot of the grinders seem to have decided on some blend of Is it Phoenix and Hogak Bridgevine as being kind of the best two decks in the format to choose from. And Humans was also on camera in those those team format the team format as well. So for teams that made day two, I noticed that three of them chose to sleeve up is it Phoenix across all three, and then one team only had triple Hogak Bridgevine. There was a team with triple Hogak? Yes, on day two. Oh,
2: interesting. I had heard that nobody registered triple Hogak earlier in the day on Twitter, so good to see this someone is from, actually this, did.
1: It's on SEG's uh, page stated as much, so I'm, yep. I'm inclined to believe that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting when you look at the day two metagame breakdown that there's really only three decks that had more than five pilots. Okay, so there were 25 teams that made day two, which means there are 70, 75 decks with 75 players. Mm-hmm. And there were mm-hmm. only three decks that had more than five, but were only represented by more than five counts. And that's Phoenix, Bridgevine, yeah. and Humans. And Humans is way behind Phoenix and Bridgevine.
1: Yeah. So between Phoenix and Bridgevine, we have, what, 57% of the room, the day two room? Yeah.
2: There were 24 Is It Phoenix pilots and 19 Bridgevine pilots pilots on day two and then from there it goes to seven human pilots
1: yeah nine point well they're all human pilots Dave. (laughs) humans piloting humans be yourself in card form yeah yeah and then it's just i mean it's just a bunch of one ofs two ofs three ofs you know it's just And grixis urza is kind of one of the more interesting things there for me that's just one of those decks that I'm sure, is just waiting in the wings for something like Bridgevine to kind of go away and maybe shoot up a little bit and really have its place as then as people tune it some more. I think this is a good
0: time to note that Grixis Urza is very much an evolution of the old Thopter Foundry War of Invention decks. It kind of evolved as a Grixis deck much in the way we sort of anticipated Urza would sway the strategy.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I think it's interesting that it seems like that has replaced just the prison, like War Prison builds. Mm-hmm. They've gone to a combo plan now that there's a good a good one available to them that they can use War of Invention to tutor up and they got good enablers. And so that's where that core of, of stuff is gone now.
1: Sure. So because we didn't watch a ton, I don't have any cool highlights to talk about really in terms of the Swiss, but in the top eight, we, top eight results actually. So we have the winners of the event, Were Jonathan Hobbs, Dominic Harvey, and Jeremy Bertirioni. So, excuse me if I said that wrong, Jeremy. But they were piloting Hogak, Humans, and a new build, Mardu Death Shadow. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about this deck because I think it's cool and it took first place. So we should really take a bit of a time to highlight on this. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it looks kind of like the cards we're used to seeing in a Death Shadow build. You know, we have Death Shadow, we have Street Race. Um, you know, some looting, some fatal push, some inquisitions, etc., etc. But there's a lot of new Modern Horizons cards to really bump up the power level of this deck and cards from War of the Spark. So we have some, we have a triple Dreadheart Arcanist, and I'm curious if that card works so well for them that they're just going to be like, I should have just ran four of because we have a singleton giver of runes in there as
2: well. Right. And I think that Dreadheart Arcanist is the type of card that fits in super well with Death Shadow builds because Death Shadow always plays a ton of one CMC spells. Mm -hmm. Almost all, right? Like, it's just a list of one mana cost spells. For sure.
1: I mean, literally every spell in the deck it can cast. Yep. So... Um, and then, so there's a singleton giver of runes just to add some additional protection uh, for threats that need it, I suppose. Uh, other white cards in the deck that, that add to the Mardu part of it include uh, Four Path to Exile. Of course, always classic removal, especially in a meta game that's heavily reliant on the graveyard right now. A couple unearthed we're seeing so as we've been talking about the power of unearth this continues to show up here in this build um i forgot to mention the ranger captain of eos there's a quartet of those in the main um as we mentioned last week and the week before i think is you know this is this is a great way to get a death shadow or a giver of runes out into the battlefield and then protect it when uh, the opponents on the opponent's turn so you sacrifice it in something like their upkeep and you have some protection yeah
2: i would love to know to know how this deck did individually yeah because this is yeah, this is a deck too. where i i have all of these cards except for the jailer which i would have to figure out something to try so i'd love to to try this out and see where it goes did you pick up some silent clearings uh i've just glossed over that i don't have those that yet either
1: <laughs> <laughs> well just run you just run the equally as good caves of coilo right <laughs> certainly doable um, no, I, I think this is this is definitely something that I'm going to test out. Like you said, I also have all these cards. Um, I've historically been very bad at piloting Death Shadow decks, so I doubt this will be any new improvement for me, well, but I want to give it a shot. Good thing,
2: because this one looks harder than Grixis to play, to me, at a glance. But what do you think, Stan?
0: Well, is anyone else surprised that Mishra's Bobble is in the deck without any Gurmog Anglers?
1: Hmm. I mean, it's just—it's one of those things. I think when you don't know what's better to put in there, you just have something to cycle through
2: your you just deck. Put in some I suppose.
1: Air. Yeah, I think you're it, right that they, there may be better there may be better cards to put there. You're right. I mean, who knows?
2: Yeah, I mean, the only thing that they have in there is that it is uh, grim, grim lava mancer fuel mm-hmm. potentially, right? Mm-hmm. But that's very marginal. So I, I have a feeling that they're just like we want to make this deck as small as possible. We don't get to play blue, so we don't have cantrips, So we're just gonna do it yeah. this way. I think
1: that's the important part, Dave, is that for a deck that historically relies a lot on being kind of a Turbo Xeroxy style deck, you don't get that possibility without the Blue cantrips. Yeah, I mean,
2: they're running Street Wraith, which is like the old school, you know, way to do it, too, and Faithless Looting. So they still have kind of 10 cantrip-ish cards, but, um, you know, don't want to fall below that. All right, so...
1: We got to move on through the rest of this breakdown. So um, second place, we had Grixis Urza, a couple Is It Phoenix decks. Um, third place, Humans, Is It Phoenix, Is It Phoenix. Fourth place, Ban Infect. That is Aaron Barish showing up with Ban Infect, uh, proving me wrong just to do it on purpose. Um, also had Burn and Grixis Urza in that tri- trio. 5th place now we start seeing Hogak Hogak and Eldrazi not Eldrazi Tron just Eldrazi mm. humans infect and is it phoenix showing up in 6 I believe that was just a simic infect deck 7th uh, place we saw the triple is it phoenix trio including Cat Light who's traditionally a spirits player and if she's not playing a spirits deck with some of the new spirit additions we know it's probably not testing that well for her 8th place devoted devastation Humans, and Mono Red Phoenix. I was surprised to see so little Devoted Devastation showing up. I saw it kind of in like some top 32s this weekend, and it's definitely something that's been getting some hype, and also hype is something that can beat uh, Hogak Bridgevine. So were you guys surprised by that too?
0: It's so hard for me to really sift through this data because we don't know who's winning which games and who's carrying their teams, if that's really happening anywhere. I think I think in a situation like this, when you have two other players that you want to support in addition to your own plan, bringing in something as reliable as Phoenix or humans or Hogax seems like the best way to avoid disappointing your teammates. And I think that's a non-zero sum equation that we should consider too.
1: So we had some counts here. Uh, we had seven is a Phoenix, four humans, and three Hogax in this uh, top, essentially top what, 24? Right players in these mm-hmm. top eight so you guys have any overall thoughts on this these two big tournaments
0: i'm shocked that there is as much as a phoenix as hogak and humans combined and i think it really either speaks to the power of aria it speaks to the power of is it phoenix still being a good deck and maybe it also has something to do with the fact that hogak excellent great strategy certainly in the right hands it can do a lot of damage but it's not this unbeatable force that everyone needs to be careful of immediately phoenix might still be a potent threat for the format
1: do you think people came overly prepared for hogak and not enough for trying to beat the very flexible is it phoenix you know t- typically a pretty challenging deck to take down i mean the reason i'm saying that is you know just in the top eight of the SEG team tournament, there were fifty-six copies of Leyline of the Void and fifty Faithless Lootings.
2: Yeah, I mean I I don't think is it Phoenix particularly wants to be on the wrong end of Leyline of the Void either, to be honest. Like it's 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 a pretty good card against against them as well. It's not it's not an incredible, but you do have to switch your off your primary game plan. You lose a whole bunch of your chance to do recursive things with stuff like Finale of Promise or Snapcaster Mage occasionally. You don't get value out of things you Faithless Loot away. So, you know, there's there's a bit of there's a bit going on of overlapping hate going on there. For sure, those numbers you just quoted are problematic. Yeah, I
1: mean in the SEG classic, the top sixteen there, there was thirty-four Leyland of the Voids and then twenty-eight Faithless lootings as the most played spells. So to me, that doesn't really bode well for the format. So just because Hogak didn't, you know, take up like half of the top eight spots, this this was a known quantity deck facing plenty of hate and yet still was everywhere uh, on day two, especially.
0: So can we talk for a minute about the self-fulfilling prophecy of Hogak being one of the decks that's running four ley lines in the board?
2: I mean, I I do think that counts for for something, I mean, there's a lot of graveyard decks, but also, yeah, every hogak list is packing for leyline and the void straight up, or, or you know, and some of them are, are main deck. There, there were some was floating oh, out yeah. there that were two main deck leyline and two yes. sideboard May- leyline, and that's almost more worrying than the fact that people were yes. running in the sideboard.
1: That was madness to me. I mean, it made sense in the hogak decks because they're so easy to pitch when they're not really necessary, yeah. but still, you know, when you just want to run two because that's what you expect to see in the metagame, that's a little wild to me. I mean, it just it just kind of indicates like a messed up format to me. It's like, it's not just that Hogak is overtly powerful, but like this is not the kind of deck building strategies that I think Watsi really wants to support in modern.
0: Why not? Do you? Why do you think this is a problem? Why do you think they're okay with legacy being a force of will format, and this like is somehow a problem if it becomes a surgical or leyline format?
1: Because leyline is when you take up four of your fifteen sideboard slots just by default It's like you know for a deck like hogak, It's just a stupid auto include,
2: in my opinion.
1: It's just like like saying like for a force of will format is very different from like a Leyline of the Void format.
2: Well, but what Stan's saying is maybe that's just what modern's brand is. Right. And so, so having that come in and out of fashion to run, you know, Leyline of the Void in your deck or any kind of graveyard hate is, is uh, I think just possibly what the format's about.
1: I mean, I know Stan is the lobbyist for big graveyard (laughs)
0: lately. I don't have to disclose how much money they give me. Nor do I think that it colors my judgment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just because you were in the Department of Graveyard before, before you got in contact with all these lobbying folks, now you think you can come back on the outside? It's like it's the rotating door of the graveyard.
1: I don't know. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with Stan that you know graveyards are going to be part of modern. But I also think that going from okay, I'm going to run a couple surgicals in my sideboard, too. I'm going to run a couple surgicals in my main deck, too. I'm going to have four ley lines in my sideboard, too. I'm going to have two ley lines in my main deck. It's just like, this is not a good slope that I want to be skiing down. Yeah. I mean,
2: I sort of share Stan's point of view here where it's kind of like, maybe this is just kind of what this format is about. It doesn't really mean that I think the Hogak deck should survive or is okay, but Um, I think there's just going to be moments where everybody's like, can't wait to throw stuff in my graveyard and cheat it back out of my graveyard cheaply. And that's just, there's so many cards in modern that do that, that if we were to sit, take a hard stance against that kind of play pattern, we would ban like six or seven decks. Yeah.
1: Well, We're going to talk more about Hogak, I think, in the dive down. In fact, I'm quite sure we're going to talk more about Hogak in the dive down. To be honest,
0: Shane, I suspect we're also going to have a few more conversations about what modern is going to be about moving forward, not only in this episode, but in episodes to come, because it really feels like we're on the cusp of a very quickly evolving format and meta that you know, maybe the modern of last year just isn't going to be recognizable for a while, but... That being said, let's take a quick break, cool our jets, dig our graves, and when we return, we are going to go deep into Hogak. How to play it, how to beat it, and whether or not it's the problem that it is set to be. Stay with us. And we're back after a very long break. Where we left our computers, did a lot of work, (laughs) took care of a ton of business. So leading up to today's episode, Dave, Shane, and I all took at least one Hogak League
2: to the bank. Yeah, we all wanted to experience sweet, pure magic just as the good Dr. Garfield intended.
0: And for some of us, this was our first time playing a Bridgevine strategy. For others, it was just playing online the deck you actually have in paper.
2: Yeah, I'm that degenerate person who has had Bridge find, and Paper already um, and had some, spent some time, you know, I've talked about it a couple of times, playing it uh, casually with friends. I never got a chance to take it out to a tournament. I also never fired it up on Moto before this because the deck always felt kind of one step away from being consistent enough. It was definitely a deck I bought into last summer, uh, you know, got on the hype train and probably should have sold all my cards into the spike. That happened last summer, and then they kind of went back down, especially once Vengevine and Bridge from Below were reprinted in um, in Ultimate Masters. But at any rate, yes, I've got a good amount of experience playing Bridgevine and annoying people with uh, attacking with zombie tokens.
0: So even though we just spent a decent amount of time in the breakdown talking about and around Hogak, basically anyone who's paying attention to Modern Horizons era or what's going on right now in the meta, has definitely heard about how busted this deck is. So this week
1: we wanted to... Or supposedly is, at least.
0: Supposedly, yes. We wanted to take a closer look at the strategy, explain to people who haven't played against it how it works. We want to share some of the things we learned from our leagues, and also just share our overall thoughts on the deck, because some of it may be surprising to our listeners.
2: Yeah, we just wanted to get our takes in here before, uh, before July 8th. No particular reason <laughs> we wanted to get him in there between <laughs> July. It just seems like a good round time to do something before. Yeah, this is potentially either one of our most useful
1: or one of our most useless dive down episodes for you. All. I don't know what you're talking about. We don't use the B word here. so <laughs> That's a bet I'm willing to take. So yeah, um, prepare you for playing it, playing against it. Give you some ammunition to talk about potential B words at your LGS. So our usual. So. One of the things I thought was wild, y'all, is that after the release of Modern Horizons, this deck essentially instantly appeared. You know, there were a few days of rumors about, you know, the secret brewing cabals kind of had us all thinking that something was coming that was going to be broken. And then almost immediately afterwards, there were some tweets going around with uh, essentially the the standard shell of this deck made pretty plain to everybody.
2: Yeah. And like we said, so for those people who don't know, this Hogak deck is built around kind of improving the previously available Bridgevine deck with an additional package of two cards, really three cards, but but two cards are really pivotal. One is Hogak Arisen Necropolis, and the other is Alter of Dementia, both of which we talked about in our set review. So Hogak Arisen Necropolis is a, an 8-8 Trample Convoke Delve card. It costs 5 hybrid green black hybrid green black um and you can't spend mana to cast it you can cast it from your graveyard though the funniest thing about this card when you actually look at it printed out is that it has all these other keywords on it and then at the bottom next to the bottom of the text box it says trample (laughs) trample in very just kind of on a line by itself jammed up against the bottom margin it's just there trample so don't forget that part um The other card, of course, is Altered Dementia, which is a two-mana-cost artifact that says sacrifice a creature. Uh, Target player puts the top top cards of their library equal to that creature's power into their graveyard. And that is a kind of broken-ish commander card and also something that people had a lot of fun with during uh, Tempest Constructed, I believe, way back in the day. So it's a card that's been around for a long time. So so the thing is, Bridgevine, the deck before, was really about... It was one of these decks that just was really good at cheating out a bunch of um, kind of power, a lot of creatures going wide quickly. And what Hogak and Alter Dementia brought to, to it were the ability to turn that creature advantage into... Uh, different forms of power other than just attacking ground power. So it gave Bridgevine kind of an alternate win con through a mill plan or also through creating a huge creature plan. And um Hogak provided a recursive threat kind of all in its in itself. So that's like the top line version of what the Hogak deck does. Now we can talk about the way the different packages within the deck work with each other, but that that's the idea.
1: Yeah. And so by and large, it's just trying to get power down, right? And like just overwhelm the opponent by, you know, getting cards in the graveyard, getting them back out of the graveyard. You know, use your enablers like looting, stitcher supplier, insolent neonate to fill your graveyard with cards like what Vengevine and Bridge from Below are kind of the two foremost things you
2: want in your graveyard pretty early on, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, there does come a, a, a... I mean, Hogak is fine to get in your graveyard early on as well, depending on what the math is looking sure. like. Sometimes you, you can get to turn two where you can only cast it from your hand. Uh, other times you can get enough in the yard where you can do the opposite. Um, and then, of course, there is... Uh, Shane mentioned Carrion Feeder a minute ago. And the thing that's really interesting about Carrion Feeder is that, you know, Alter Dementia made Bridgevine a lot better Because Bridgevine kind of, in my opinion, always needed an additional sacrifice outlet. It used to run Viscera Seer um, for the Scry capability and also just because it's a free sac outlet. Um, Mm -hmm. Carrion Feeder has completely replaced Viscera Seer, so now there's eight sac outlets in the deck. Hmm. And the big reason that this Mm -hmm. is important is because it makes the zombie synergies within the deck a a lot higher than than they used to be before. So that makes Gravecrawler a much more live card, much more often than it was before just because Carrion Feeder is just on plan so well with everything you're doing at this point. So Carrion Feeder pretty uh, sort of like nondescript, but it is a super powerful card in itself. I mean it also gets tall and viscerus here just
1: scries. So having like a, a threat that just gets taller than other things can be super valuable. I
2: mean we see that all the time just in, you know, Champion of the Parish. Yeah, although I will say in a deck that that really is a combo deck you would think that the scry would be better than making another big dumb creature but i i think in this case it's true it's it's better to have another big threat yeah
1: so you know once you have something like bridge from below in the graveyard you're you're feeding that bridge with your sack outlets like dave mentioned so you have your and
2: feeder should we tell people what bridge from below does sure raise your hand listeners right. if you don't know what bridge from below does
0: Wow, that is hundreds of thousands of raised hands.
2: I know, just like that. I felt the the gravitational pull of the earth throw off because, because they don't know what Bridge from Below does. Well, the,
0: the reason Bridge from Below is wacky as, as we pull up this card to read it seamlessly, what's wacky about Bridge from Below is it does nothing on the battlefield or in your hand. You literally need it in the graveyard to do anything.
2: It has no card text okay.
1: if you bring it into play. Yeah. <laughs> Before we we move on, I do want to talk about a sick play I saw this weekend on camera where a player cast the Bridge from Below from their hand and then evoked a Wingmare out of their hand to then get the Bridge from Below into the graveyard and create a zombie, I believe. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That is pretty
2: good. (laughs) That's really good.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Stan, read us some Bridge from Below text.
0: Bridge from Below. Black, black, black enchantment. Whenever a non-token creature is put into your graveyard from play, if bridge is in your graveyard, put a 2-2 black zombie creature token into play. And when a creature is put into an opponent's graveyard from play, if bridge is in your graveyard, remove it from the game.
2: Right. So for everything else that we've talked about, right now this is the card that is the the real heart of of this strategy right at least the flashy version that everybody talks mm-hmm. about where this deck can put out hundred power on turn two and and things like that it's all really really because of that mechanic from bridge from below the the one that says if you a token creature goes to your graveyard you get a two two yeah so yeah. everything in this deck is is pointed at trying to put Payoff cards mostly Bridge from Below, but also Vengevine into the graveyard, and then having ways to activate the graveyard abilities of both of those cards. Whether it's putting cheap creatures into play, sacrificing creatures, or looping casting creatures over and over and over again.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. What's what's cool about having like Bridge from Below uh, in the graveyard, and you know, feeding it with your sacrifice outlets. Especially like something like Alter from Dementia, is you're sort of continuing to get cards in your graveyard, which then continue feeling your various plans of attack. So you get things like Bloodgast, Gravecrawler, Vine, Hogak, as you're just trying to go about your plan. And so that's really adding to the redundancy and effectiveness of the deck.
2: Yeah. And originally, the deck was just all about. Getting a couple of bridge from belows into play, getting a couple of creatures out there, and then maybe sacrificing things to bring them back. Maybe you play a zero casting cost um, walking ballista walking or backwalker. Correct, which were staples of the bridge vine deck. So that once you got a couple of bridge from belows in, you could just throw out a zero casting cost creature and either trigger your your bridges or trigger Venge Vines really easily for low mana. That whole plan is is really the B the B side in this version of the deck now. Because what you really want to do is use Bridge from Below plus Hogak to loop and create as many zombie tokens as you can with Alter of Dementia to fuel your graveyard by stacking Hogak over and over again, get up to a gazillion power, and then mill your opponent out.
0: Yeah, and also to clarify something Dave said, the whole plan of playing the Hangerbacks and Walking Ballista is just out the window entirely. Those cards are no longer in the deck as we know it today.
1: Right. If you have... You know, maybe sometimes just one bridge, but typically two bridges, an altar of dementia and a resolved hogak on the board. The game is essentially sewn up unless the opponent has some way to interact with a graveyard. So when you sacrifice Hogak to altar, you mill eight cards, right? And then you create two black zombie tokens if you have two bridges in the graveyard. So that then fills your graveyard with eight cards. So you're typically finding some more bridges. Uh, you're recasting Hogak with the two zombies you just created and the cards you milled. And then you just can repeat this process over and over again until you have this board full of zombies and a graveyard full of cards. And then you can turn the tables on your opponent and you start targeting them with the altar. So when you sacrifice Hogak to it or any of your like you know dozens of 2-2 zombies you have now, you simply can just mill them out. You know, by you know, recasting your Hogak
2: or just using all your zombies in a s- much slower method. Correct, and you can often do this without having two bridges in the in the graveyard when you start. Right, so sometimes you get to a point where maybe you have, or even no bridges in the yard. So sometimes you have Alter Out and Hogak Out, and a couple of creatures that you played early on, like a Carrion Feeder, or a Stitcher Supplier, or a Grave Crawler, and so you can get it going where you can get a couple of casts or recasts of Hogak out. To, until you manage to get bridges in the graveyard by milling Hogak a couple of or by sacrificing Hogak a couple of times and milling yourself, and then the engine kind of takes over for you there. So there's a little bit of buffer built in just from the creatures you already have in play potentially, or ones that you can hard cast back out of the graveyard. The other thing I would say here, and something that I didn't realize or think about too closely until I watched the finals of the Grand Prix is that you can actually go off with two Hogaks and one bridge and Alter, hmm. Because you can use Hogak to convoke to cast another Hogak. Mm-hmm. And then sacrifice the tapped one to the legend rule and have a new untapped one in play that you have used. So what you do is you cast Hogak uh tap the two creatures that you have untapped like the the zombie token and the first hogak while the second hogak is on the stack you sacrifice the hogak that you have just tapped for mana and then loop it a whole bunch of times like that
0: in other words you get to do the very very cool move that doesn't tilt any opponent of saying hold priority yeah and that's when you get to sack your hogak to the first hogak being on the stack
2: Yeah, exactly. And so there's lots of ways to make sure that you can mill yourself through the deck a sufficient amount to either get bridges or mill your opponent out or or anything once Hogak is is in play. You can also uh, occasionally just mill your opponent out with a couple of Hogak activations and then sacrificing a board that has things like vengevines that have come out and things like that and so the, the deck has really shifted away from being a deck that was trying to put a huge amount of power onto the board like i said last year bridgevine was even running goblin bushwhacker to be able to give tokens or or grave crawlers that you've just cast um plus one plus zero in haste so that you could turn all of the power that you're putting into play into hasty power now Altered Dementia is a card that's just on plan, it fuels your combo, it also is your kill condition, just one card, and so it kind of goes off the rails really quickly from there.
1: I want to talk a little bit about this graveyard loop you kind of alluded to earlier, Dave, because I think it's a really interesting sort of line of attack that this deck has, kind of like plan 3 sub A. So we have these graveyard loops with uh, carrion feeder, stitcher, supplier, and the zombie tokens, all
2: counting as zombies, and, so and grave crawlers to too. I know that's obvious, but you left it. You left yeah. it left oh
1: yeah, list. he also yeah, he does yeah. count. Yeah, so so I guess I'm just, I'm just kind of focusing on getting grave crawler back out of the graveyard. Right. And so you know, for a single black mana, you can cast it with any of these zombies on the board and then if you have a sack outlet you can then sack it which either is going to grow that carrion feeder or fill the graveyard with two cards from altar and then that creates more zombie tokens you have any bridges from below in the graveyard but then you can just recast it as many times as you can with your black mana to generate both uh, going wide with your zombie tokens and tall if you have a a carrion feeder uh, really relatively cheaply, and just kind of making a bunch of two twos for you know just a single black
2: mana, yeah, and this is a powerful just kind of synergy in general in in modern that I think a, a number of different decks could use in different ways it's just this is the one where it's probably the most prominent right now, I think you know similarly thinking about generating value out of the non-kill like kill creature cards, there's a lot of play around with maximizing the number of times that you get to b- bring blood gas back from the graveyard or sacrifice mm-hmm. it. So thinking about your land drops in a way that lets you maximize the number of times that you get a blood gas back is important too. Because they also can be used yep. as as altered dementia fodder if your engine is sort of sputtering a little bit. You can generally get a couple of mils out of that and then all of a sudden you might be off for the races.
1: Yeah, and then when you're recasting Gravecrawler as well, you're also triggering your Vengevine mm-hmm. and your you know in your Graveyard to recur.
2: So that works out quite nicely as yeah, well. Yeah, that was one of the main so, ways to bring Vengevine back in the previous Ridgevine version of the deck is that mm-hmm. you would often be looking at a board and go, okay, I cast, my, um, I cast a Gravecrawler and then I cast a second Gravecrawler and I have a Sack Outlet. And so you just kind of like loop it a little bit like that.
0: You know, this conversation reminds me Did Bridgevine first come into existence solely because of the printing of Stitcher Supplier?
2: It did help a lot. So I think people had been waiting for a while for a deck to come together that could um, reliably fill the the graveyard for Vengevine to work and and Bridge for Below, and that card just popped up and and helped a lot. I think that people played around with Vengevine decks before that, even even potentially black ones, but really. you quite often more often saw Vendivine in things that were more zoo type of builds Mm -hmm. before that when people were trying Hmm. to break it, where you would try to maybe even cast it fairly without something like Faithless looting, just bring it back later with a kind of big uh, turn where you're casting a bunch of one casting cost creatures. So let's talk a little about playing this deck y'all. Yeah. What do you think? So I always felt like this deck feels a little bit like playing storm but with creatures, like it felt that way last year when I played it. It feels that way now. Still, um, it had a you know, it had a hard time. I think you're just kind of stacking triggers, keeping track of a lot of things. Stan is unconvinced by what I'm saying, but that that's kind of the way that I felt about it. I always called this deck Creature Storm, kind of in my mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only reason I'm a little unconvinced is because it has less to do with casting a bunch of spells and more to do with just looping a bunch of triggered abilities. So sometimes you're not really even using your hand you're kind of just using what's in the graveyard and on the battlefield i know what you mean though in terms of it's a lot of clicking in the way that storm is a lot of clicking but i don't know sometimes you don't just combo out it's almost like playing storm with empty the warrens as the payoff because like sometimes you are really setting up a game winning play in a turn or two right
2: yeah although i think that means you might be playing this deck wrong that That's kind of the takeaway that I had after the leagues that I did, which is the more that I was going for the creature kills, the more I was not looking hard enough to see if there was a way to mill my opponent out to to do an uninteractive uh, win. Um, and so I think that hmm. my experience was the more I focused on winning unfairly, the the better I did. And that's different, you know, that you can manipulate the game to go in different ways. There were lots of times where I would be playing where I would be like, okay, how early do I want to put Alter of Dementia out on the battlefield to try to to pull something off? Should I play Hogak first and swing and then sacrifice it? And I really kind of felt like for me, the sooner I got Alter out, the better.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like I wasn't able to do a lot of the broken things that this deck purports to be able to do simply because I either wasn't getting my altars down or I wasn't using
2: altar correctly. Probably, yeah. I mean, it's a there's a big difference between games that have altar dimension and games that don't. I feel like I probably messed up and
1: using um, carrion feeder instead of altar of dementia as a sacrifice outlet.
2: Probably, ever. yeah. I mean, definitely, if they're both on the field, you you're almost guaranteed to be biased towards going towards using Alter, unless for some reason you don't have a hogak or something like that and so Alter becomes a lot less good if you know that you're not going to be recurring hogak but that is in my mind that's the primary game plan
1: so so in terms of supporting that game plan what kind of things were you all looking for in your openers because i think that's you know in a format as fast as modern, that's really, you know, turn one is your mulligan. Yeah.
0: yeah, I'm happy to start this off and because I was the newest person to the strategy, I think, or at least I was, you know, the last among us to give it a shot. I'm curious to hear if you guys think some of my early interpretations or decisions were right or wrong. But I would often mull toward a hand that allowed me to control what I'm putting in my graveyard, so faithless looting was ideal but sometimes an insolent neonate was good enough just because i knew it would let me have some control over what's going into my yard on turn one or two
2: yeah
1: sure so were you just looking for something to fill your graveyard or were you looking for some sacrifice uh, yeah i mean i would
0: generally prioritize faithless and neonate over something like altar or bridge just because i found over the course of a couple games even in the practice rooms that finding ways to get bridge into my yard or finding ways of getting Vengevine into my yard was a little bit harder than actually finding those cards. Correct.
2: And that was the, definitely the big failing. I I think uh, in previous versions, this one with altar, it's changed of course, but that was the biggest frustration before was just not having enough discard outlets or mill outlets to put bridge into the graveyard. Yeah. Shane, what did you think about openers? Anything, any different take there?
1: No, I mean, I agree. Like So I have a decent amount of practice thinking about these lines from playing Dredge a lot, but I think that there's some a, a substantial differences in terms of playing this deck because not only do you need a way or want a way, I think, to maybe get those early Bridge from Below's or early Venge Vines into the graveyard or maybe even Bloodghast's, is I think you want to be looking for something to do like you said, Dave, something a little bit busted, right? Pretty early on. Like I don't think you 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 don't want to play this deck in even a remotely fair way. Like I felt like one thing, like one thing I'd look for is okay, do I have a few small one drop creatures and a Vengevine and like a discard outlet? Because then that this makes me say, okay, I can have a turn two Vengevine. Because turn one, I get it in the yard. Turn two, I cast my one drops. And I'm swinging with a four or three. And that's like a pretty darn good start. It's not the, the most busted start, but it's certainly
2: busted ass. It was the most busted start last summer. Now, <laughs> not not that busted. I mean, even in modern, that felt pretty... Oh, across the whole format, that felt pretty busted last year. And now I think it's not as not as much. Which is insane, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think for my part, I was really looking for... Um, you know, I kind of think Insulet Neonate is the worst card in the deck. And as much as you can get it to replace itself, I mean, it's sort of close between, um, between Gravecrawler and and Neonate. Gravecrawler is sort of a necessary evil in some ways, like it's just such an important cog in the machine, but it's a little cog. Like it's not one of the big wheels. It's something that can help you if you take up space, if you're kind of sputtering. I was really, I on the flip side, I kind of feel like Stitcher Supplier is one of the best cards in the deck and especially one of the best cards to yeah. have in your opener. Absolutely. You, you do need a sack outlet to go with that. So whether that's Alter Dementia or Carrion Feeder or something like that, um, that was pretty much what I was looking to start with a lot of times and the big thing with Citrus Supplier is that Citrus Supplier leads to a bunch of just totally normal cast uh, turn two Hogaks. It's the biggest yeah. key to just getting getting Hogak out onto the battlefield right away and kind of asking your opponent to have it. And then it becomes a game of, well, am I going to go mill because I have the cards to be able to do that? Or am I just going to try to smash face with, an, with a force of nature that I cast on turn two? and Scissor Supplier is key to that. It's the only card that really helps make that happen. So, um, that's what I would be looking for mostly is like Supplier plus Carrion Feeder, Supplier plus Hogak, and, and, uh, a couple other things. Of course, you always want Faithless Looting, but it's much more, it's much more of a secondary piece, I think, in this deck than it, I really felt like it was in, um, in like is it phoenix or something like that where it's clearly the best you know Faithless is it's clearly the best card in the deck in in is it phoenix in this deck it felt has always felt a little bit like a secondary player to me just kind of playing it for value uh easing that greasing the wheels a little bit
1: can we talk sequencing a little bit on those early turns because i always had a question when i had a few options on turn one right yeah so i have a faithless looting I have a stitcher supplier. I have an insulate neonate. You know, what do you think you lead with when you have those various options?
0: I think partially depends on whether you have Vengevine and or Bridge from Below in your hand
2: or Hogak.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Hogak less so. Like Hogak is a card that you can afford to put in your graveyard, but you don't necessarily have to either.
2: I still, I still think that it factors into the same type of thinking you're having there, which is what kind of payoff do I have for this hand? Right. Right? Like is it the Hogak payoff or is it the Vengevine payoff or the bridge bridge from below payoff kind of thing? And so you do have different ways of thinking about those particular three cards, Stitcher Supplier, Faithless Looting and Insulin ENA from there.
0: Right, well, uh, basically the point I wanted to get to was depending on what else you have in your hand would determine whether I'm leading with Stitcher Supplier or Faithless Looting. Because if I have a card that is good in the yard, I generally preferred leading with Faithless Looting because it was also getting me through the deck a little bit and helping me set up some of my turn two, turn three plays.
1: Yeah. Yeah, to me, doing kind of like the looting turn one just felt like kind of like the level one way to play this deck. And I'm curious... If I mess things up, like, you know what I mean? Like, like Dave mentioned. So Dave, how does having a, an opening hand hogak inform your decision? Like, are you just looking to like, how are you looking to cast that as early
2: as possible when you have to have two creatures in the battlefield to do so? Well, I mean, you, you start with, if you have stitcher supplier is a, is a big one, right? Because you can mill a grave crawler away and potentially recast it from the graveyard because the Stitcher supplier is a zombie itself. And then you could use the mm-hmm. red mana on turn two to, to do a uh, Faithless Looting, and then you'll have enough cards, enough creatures in play to cast a Hogak on turn two that way. You can potentially do it the other way too, depending on what your hand is like. Like if you have both Gravecrawler, or Gravecrawler and Sturge's Supplier and Faithless Looting, you could cast Looting first to see if you get a different payoff or get a um, Vengevine or something like that. So I think it really does depend on on where you are. Like if you have both of the one drops, maybe wait, if you only have, if you don't have the one drop, maybe you go the other direction and play the stitcher supplier first to see if you can get someone in the graveyard that you could use. Even a blood ghast is great in that situation, right? Because you, you play a land on turn two and then it, it comes back. Yeah. You just cheat the mana. Yeah. And you can do something along the lines of I stitcher supplier into something and then turn two, I cast uh faithless looting and then maybe I get a blood uh, blood gas off of that, play a land, you get a couple of things back that way. But I, I got to say, like here, as we talk about the sequencing stuff, this is very much one of those moments where on the the dive down, we're doing our job to inform the listeners that this is a decision point that you should think about. I'm not sure that I have enough reps where I feel like I have it down cold right now either. And it's definitely every time I look at one of these hands, I go – Three turns from now, what is the potential for this board to be, and how can I back myself up to to making sure that that happens? And most of those best plans either revolved around revolved around uh, Ventvine Bridge from below or Hogak, and it's just trying to figure out which path you need to walk down to make it happen.
1: Yeah, I think that's the right point of view to have here, Dave. Um, yeah, like we've mentioned in a lot of our past deck dives, right? It's like sequencing felt so important when playing this deck, like you know, just. Casting or sacrificing like a Stitcher Supplier to get three fresh cards into the graveyard, maybe before you cast that second creature spell, or before you play that yeah. land drop, is gonna maximize the, the number of times you're gonna recur a vengevine or a blood or have like a grave crawler or a hogak to cast. And that's just like some super level one stuff. Like I noticed all sorts of instances, like you mentioned with like the land drops and your blood and things like that is really thinking about how to maximize the goal of the deck um versus kind of just what are some some pretty easy graveyard shenanigans to find myself in i think is what separates the the newer players like you know i was at least in the couple leagues i played versus people who really are maximizing the power that this deck has to offer yeah and
2: i totally agree that that those are huge for for playing the deck you, and the thing that's weird about it is that they're kind of counterintuitive right? Because you want to hold that land until you do some stuff and then play it. I mean, a lot of people I think have just learned from maybe, you know, my background for a long time, I played a lot of limited, right? And so the first thing that you want to do almost every time is be like, okay, what land am I going to play this turn? And then now I'm going to play, play my cards out along from that now that I have a sense of how much, how many resources I have. But those land drops are resources. Those, um you know, casting a one drop and then Having it be a beastiture supplier that puts more cards in the graveyard and not just running out of land and running out, uh, a, a, you know, a casting a second card before you know if you're going to have a Vengevine. Those are definitive moments that yeah. turn a normal draw into something that's broken. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, Bloodgast is. Just kind of a underrated and unsung hero, but it's a really messed up card in the amount of ways that you can use it as fodder for mills, use it as a, a creature that you just keep recurring to attack with, or just all kinds of different stuff that you can do with that. But you always you do have to make the sequencing work for you. you got to play those those lands as late as you can in the turn.
0: Yeah, it was kind of interesting piloting this deck in that it made my decisions about if I even wanted to play a land that turn, really interesting. I even found pretty quickly that one of the nice things about this deck is that so many of the spells that you are casting in a fair way are so cheap that sometimes your third land drop just didn't necessarily matter. And there was a fair amount of games where I decided to hold my third land past turn three if I felt like I could set up a future play wherein I got a couple blood guest out off of the land.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. what else do you guys think are some kind of level one tips and tricks we can share with the listeners from our
2: experiences well the big one that comes to mind so if we're moving on from like this is the plan of the deck and talking a little bit about what the early the early turns are like into places where people make mistakes i will tell you the um the big one that i do all the time still by accident is accidentally nuke my own Bridge from belows by either blocking someone's chump attack or by attacking for value with a deck in a way into a, a board where my opponent has some creatures. You really can't mm-hmm. do that in this in this deck if you are on the bridge from below plan, because if they lose a creature, they lose that you lose your bridge from belows, And so you have to build up your army until you're ready to kill, yeah. basically. Yes. And so that's yes. another kind of way that the mill plan actually makes it easier to play this deck is because you can just sit there and generate a bunch of power and then just kill them without ever having to use the attack step. And um, that protects your bridge from below. Um, conversely, if you're playing against this deck, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the um you know one of the ways to at least get a little bit of a leg up is remember that clause from bridge from below that says that if you lose a creature, they lose their bridge from belows. That's huge mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, cast a creature, you know, cast a walking ballista for zero and that just gets rid of it. Or, you know, Shane was just talking about using an evoke creature. Like that that counts as a creature dying and going to the graveyard. Not that evoke creatures are really common, mm-hmm. but that would help get rid of their bridge from belows. There's any any number of different things like that 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 can do that that you have control over you know fatal push your own creature removal is not good against the stack if it doesn't exile so if you're in game one and you have fatal pushes blow up your dark confidant and that'll get rid of their bridge from below's for sure
0: and sometimes getting rid of the bridge from below even though it may feel like a setback because you have to kill your own creature and i mean you're what like two for zeroing yourself it might feel bad but it might not Be real bad because the time you spend, or at least the time you earn from the lack of tempo that they no longer have from losing that bridge, might be enough for you to claw back into a a position where you can win or turn the game around.
1: Are there any other ways you guys think that you played something particularly well or particularly poorly that the listeners can learn from? I certainly feel like I messed up more than I succeeded. You first. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'll give an example. I'll give an example of that. So. I mean, I, I feel bad that like I can't... I don't feel like I can come... Like you mentioned earlier, David, I don't feel like I can come here with any point of authority. I can only just talk about my experiences and kind of people can can learn from that. And I think that, like you said, is building up your army versus trying to get in that chip damage, which then they can chump block and ruin your bridge from below plan, is super smart. Like, don't just try to get in that chip damage when you can just go super wide, and then you know either do it all at once or over a couple of
2: turns where losing your bridge from below doesn't even matter anymore. I think... Yeah, the thing that's interesting about what you're saying there, like I draw a little parallel really quick, is that this deck is not Affinity, right? Like Affinity mm-hmm. tries to build a board really in a broken way, get a bunch of creatures out and attack and all that kind of stuff, but Affinity is okay with getting 5-6 damage a turn. Um, this deck can't really do that because the Because of the vulnerability of bridge and below.
0: Well, some games you can. You know, some games if your opponent has a turn zero lay line or turn two rest in peace before you can set up an engine, and you don't want to scoop, you can play to your out by just playing you know one ones or two ones and just hoping that they get there over time. Oh yeah. And you know, I had a game. I, I think it was actually a match where I had to do this twice against blue white control where post board they had rest in peace but they didn't present an adequate threat. So I was able to basically exploit the fact that they didn't have good pressure and just chip away. And sometimes that's all it really takes. Didn't feel like the most broken or efficient way of winning a game, but it is serviceable.
2: Yeah. No, I think you got to do what you got to do, right? It's the same thing as casting uh, Arclight Phoenix for four and just being happy with that.
0: Yeah, in a way, that's kind of a cool thing about this deck. Like, you can do the broken stuff, and you can cheat out creatures, or sometimes you can just play a really slow, fair game and hope that that works as well.
1: Yeah, I think what you're getting at, Stan, is one of the things that I think separates the best modern decks from the not-so-best lately, is that they have a slightly broken game plan to very broken game plan, is kind of maybe the the preferred option but then the backup options are there You know, maybe a, a second or even a third way that the deck is trying to win and has the you know perfectly good opportunity to do so and that's what i think this hogak bridgevine deck has right now is it has you know the, the mill combo win is kind of like the most busted and hard to interact with thing but also has plenty of ways to beat down even without the graveyard mm-hmm.
0: And sometimes you have to, I mean, people are wise to this deck, and people are bringing in their surgicals, they're bringing in their lay lines, their rest in peace, et cetera, so knowing that you can have certain outs and knowing that you know a two one that doesn't block is still a perfectly decent beater, mm. you know that's what makes this deck i think potent, yeah
1: so let's talk a little bit about that, Stan, you know with people bringing in so much hate and talking about that let's how can we as opponents playing against Hogak try to you know, stop this? Supposed menace.
0: Well, agree or disagree, Leyline of the Void and or Rest in Peace are the single best hate cards against this deck. That that is my position.
1: I think that's pretty
0: true. Shane agrees.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't see how you I don't see how you can argue that. Yeah, I
2: mean, I think that that right after that comes uh, Surgical and Rav Trap, both of which are good depending on what shell you're in. Um, mm. Just because if you can cast Rav Trap a bunch of times over and over again, it's it's pretty good. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about Leyline and Rest in Peace first, right?
1: So, you know, we've seen the sheer number of Leyline of the Voids. You know, the most played spell in these tournaments is just wild to me. You know, it's not Lightning Bolt. It's not Path to Exile. It's Leyline of the Void, even more than Faithless Looting. But the problem that we see... Even
0: more than Surgical, which was like the most popular card for the first half of the year...
1: Well, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about Hogak, right? A surgical is sort of more precision mm-hmm. and, you know, ley line of the void and rest in peace are kind of the gigantic hammers. But, you know, Hogak opponents, of course, are going to have multiple ways to interact with these hate cards. They're going to have nature's claims. They're going to have evoked wingmares. They're going to have ingot chewers to serve as these immediate answers and cheap immediate answers to your hate cards. You know, or you know, you, they like we talked about is they just try to put the power down on the battlefield through hard casting their creatures. You know, if you're just spinning your wheels because you multiply to five looking for your hate piece and really couldn't get much of a battlefield presence to stop what they're trying to do. Yeah. So I think that that's, you know, of course you you, you want to run leyline. You run a one recipe if you can, and you're trying to get them out on turn zero or turn two on the play if you're
2: lucky, and just allow that to win and hope they don't draw their anti hate. Yeah, and it's it's rough. I mean, the in particular, the mirror matches kind of go down this path of who has more leyline to the void and who has more answers to leyline to the void, and that is um, not particularly fun magic. But there's you know, you just have to deal with it in that way. And then it, it does come down to trying to beat down with Savannah lions yeah. then, which, um, you know, it's, it's of marginal kind of value, I guess, or marginal quality doing that. But sometimes you get there.
1: Yeah. I mean, like you said earlier, Dave, though, I think surgical's really worthwhile too, right? I mean, it's instance, it's instant speed and it's free.
2: That's, that's super valuable. Well, I, and I think it comes down, some of surgical too, is if you're a deck that's running snapcaster mage, yeah, is is it's way better then, and I also think Ravenous Trap is similarly way better if you're running a deck that has Snapcaster Mage because it is uh, gives you a chance to cast it a couple of times.
0: Yeah, that's fair, especially with Rav Trap. Quite a few of the cards in this deck set up the trap. Stitcher Supplier does it. Yeah, Faithless Looting does it. Yeah, sometimes you're just doing some some sack chains where you're trying to make a really big carrying feeder and that'll do it too.
2: I mean, if you sacrifice a grave crawler to alter dementia, it fire, it triggers ravenous trap because it's three cards entering. Right. So
1: yeah, three cards. Yeah. I mean, I had, I played right into a raft trap and like a game two versus an opponent where I was like, well, I got this turn one faithless looting. I need, I'm going to discard this bridge from below in this vent in this venge vine and then they just Rav trapped me and it's like, stink. That's a that's a couple good cards out of there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but to be fair, I don't think there's anything the Hogek player can do about Ravenous Trap, much the same way the Dredge player couldn't do anything about it. You kind of have to make them have it because these are the cards you need for your deck to function, especially if it is your turn one play.
1: I think that's a realistic point of view, Stan. I think that's very realistic. But I think all these one and done's, right? Like, you know, we have relic, tormod's crypt, rav trap, although you know relic and tormod's crypt are on
2: board effects essentially versus rav versus rav They're sorcery speed essentially, which I think makes them quite yeah. a bit worse.
1: Yeah. But I think that what separates you know newer players or average players from very good players is really understanding how to effectively play around these types of cards, right? Like, you know, you have to understand how do I what can I sandbag? What do I play into the board? What do I play into my graveyard to you know minimize the damage that these hate cards that I'm almost certainly going to see are going to have on me? Right. And, I, and I'm just not there. Like, I just don't feel ready, like, that I have that understanding, even after playing some Dredge. Because the way that Dredge plays is just different. I can't sandbag the same kinds of
2: cards. Yeah, I, I agree that, that that's the point where like, my exposure to how to play this deck stopped as well. And my record definitely showed it, you know, the first couple of leagues I played, I did pretty well. And then the record kind of flagged as I, as I approached 20 matches, you know, where people started to know how to beat the deck and figured out, Oh, I do want to get rid of altered dementia. Oh, I do want to try to surgical extracts, um, you know, Hogak or something like that when they're on this plan, like that will, um, that really made me level back out at about 500. So
1: Yeah, I want to come back to that later, Dave, when we talk about kind of, you know, our overall thoughts and feelings about this deck's presence in the form, because I think that that's important, right? Like, are people adjusting to it, or is it still, you know, a a too powerful deck in the format, perhaps?
2: I mean, one thing that was really interesting to see was to see the swap from the original sideboard cards from when I first picked up the deck, which included Ingot Shewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as something, and then it became Wingmare, and then it just went to the straight-up kind of normal uh, Nature's Claim as being the main the main kind of answer out of the board.
1: Yeah, it was like Ingature for like Graf Digger's Cage or something, or what? Yeah,
2: I think it was for, for uh, Relic of Progenitus and Graf Digger's Cage and um, probably even stuff like um, uh, Chalice of the Void or something like that, because uh, yeah, I feel like good. Chalice is like probably medium good against this deck, although I never really faced it. With it, it's just there's an awful lot of one drops in this in this deck that especially when it comes down to like surgical and stuff Or sorry, stitcher supplier that you want to cast. And so probably does a little bit of work.
1: Let's talk a little bit about cage. Like, how good do you all think cage is against this deck? Because I've heard mixed reviews of it. And I have sort of mixed feelings about it as well. Well,
0: it does stop a few of the most recursive creatures, right? Like, it'll keep your Hogak in the yard. It can keep your Bridgevines in the yard, Gravecrawler, and... um, Bloodgast? Yeah, Bloodgast. Thank you. So, if part of the strategy for the Hogak player is to do these loops where the creatures are coming in and out of the yard, Grafticker's Cage can buy you time. And that seems to be, like, one of the recurring themes that I'm sure we've touched on already. We'll probably keep touching on a lot of it, you know, with the exception of maybe Leyline or Rest in Peace, which buy you the most time. So many of these answers are just buying you like, you know, a few turns or some tempo if you can get it.
1: Yeah. Speaking of, you know, cards that just buy you some time, I think Yixlid Jailer is one of those as well. I think that's something that we saw. I, I love seeing this in modern where it's kind of like, okay, here's this problem and we have thousands of cards to try to address this problem. What do we have in the archives to dig up? And in this case, it's a Future site, one in a black, 2-1 zombie wizard, and it reads, cards in graveyards yeah. lose all abilities. That is just wild. So I think what's what's good about that, one thing that I put in my notes is that I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing more Dark Blast, but then I realized that Dark Blast can't be dredged when it's in the graveyard.
2: So right, to, to kill hand, them? Yeah, because it doesn't, classic, have, it doesn't right? have dredge anymore.
1: Yeah, so that's that's, uh, that's a perfectly cromulent card to bring up against uh, Hogak. In fact, I think the what the Mardu Shadow ran a, a quartet in their sideboard at the SEG. Yeah, I get,
2: like I mentioned last week, I think that's because it, in some places this is showing up because it's good with Unearth. So you can bring it, you know, after someone kills it, you can bring it back to try to lock them back down. Um, I didn't see a Exile Jailer at all, but it is you know, definitely why I would bring in some fatal pushes and dark blast out of the sideboard for, um, for Hogak. Yeah, for sure. Well,
0: I think it's also worth noting that the blood gas and the grave crawlers don't block. And usually the insolent neonates are being sacked to themselves. So, in some cases, you can get a, in a situation where the Hogak player doesn't have any zombies on the board, any zombie tokens or Hogaks or Bridge Vines to block with. And in that case, the jailer can also just start chipping away at damaging the opponent.
1: For sure. San, you're saying, you're meaning uh, Vengevine, right?
0: Yeah, Vengevine, Hogak, and zombie tokens are like some of the only creatures in the deck that can actually block an attacker.
1: Yeah, I found that to be super annoying, actually, when I'm playing the deck.
2: Totally, totally, yeah. If you're trying to block, you're doing it wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, but sometimes you gotta, you're losing, especially in the mirror
2: sometimes. Yeah, I know. The the mirror is, like, super annoying,
1: I think, but... So... How do you guys typically try to time your one and done's? Is it just kind of the same things we've said in past episodes where it's just maximize value when triggers are happening from the
2: graveyard? I don't know. It feels to me like the one and done's here are like get rid of four cards. Like I don't even care what four cards it is. Just get it out there and get rid of them before they cast. Because one of the main payoffs here is a dredge card. Sorry, not a dredge card, a delve card. And so if someone casts it while they have. sorcery speed priority up they've already used all the resources out of the graveyard and so it's a little bit dicier than some of the other um, decks we've seen so you think just kind of being aggressive to not let them really get that foothold I, that's what I felt was the most effective against me when I was playing. But I also think that Relic and Tormod's Crypt were pretty medium. And For I sure. only saw them towards the beginning of when I was playing it, maybe a week and a half or two weeks ago. And now I feel like I've never, I haven't seen a deck that's running one of those cards in a while. It's mostly Ravtrap, Surgical, Leyline, Rest in Peace.
1: Stan, what about one of my picks to click from our Ravnica Allegiance set review? Lavinia or Zarya's Renegade.
0: Yeah, so someone played this against me, and I was pretty impressed with its ability to just shut out my Hogak, but it felt like that's all it really did, was I could no longer cast Hogak, but that was the case with a lot of matchups where, you know, if someone played Graveyard Hit against me, I couldn't cast Hogak either. So I think in that case, Lavinia is super narrow. If you have it, you can bring it in, but I don't know if this is the type of card that you necessarily want to buy up as tech against the hogak deck maybe if we enter a weird reality where hogak and tron are the two most popular decks you can start getting more lavinia copies but until then i think this is just kind of like it was a spicy decision that an opponent of mine had but i don't know if it's the solution that we're looking for
1: have you guys been seeing more Pithing needles lately or was it just kind of my small sample size i felt like i ran up against a bunch of them
2: I think Pithing Needle is a good card right now in sideboards to just have access to as part of your uh, anti Hogak slash anti other card suite because Pithing Needle can also go after Karn the Great Creator, which is you know nice overlap there for a slot in your sideboard.
1: So what do you, what do you think you
2: should name with a needle? I I personally think you have to name Alter Dementia and just kind of try to lock that down because nothing else is. As powerful with an activated ability as that that is for me, I think I had a few people name that in the blind. It seems like the right name. Oh yeah, I think he, it's just you know it does the most broken stuff. It's the it's a kill condition and something that powers the engine. So it's just it's got to go if you can.
0: Well, let, let's think about real quick. What else can you name? I mean, you can name fetch. You can name carrion
2: feeder. You can at, name yeah the carrion other feeder stack was a thing lead. I
1: saw like on a second. Mm-hmm. You know. Needle, or if I had a, I had one of those on board and it could do some damage, they just
2: did that. You can name uh, Insolent Neonate if you really wanted to sure. for some reason. Those might be the only targets. I will say there are some builds of Hogak that are running Crit Breaker out of the the sideboard as a way to generate some extra value, draw some cards with tokens and things like that if you kind of stall out a little bit. And so you could potentially name... I mean, Crit Breaker is a card that you could name with Pithy Needle if you were against one of those builds, but...
0: Yeah, I guess really what people need to remember that Bridge from Below is a triggered ability. So if you name Bridge with your Pithing Needle, it will literally do nothing.
2: Yeah, I'm just going to say... So with Hand Disruption and Counterspells, you're probably trying to get alter. With that as well, because it's the only card that's safe to have in the in the graveyard, and so Force and Negation is a really good. I personally mm. think you should be waiting okay. to, for them to try to play Alter to to do that. I'm not a, as much a fan of like firing it off in response to a Faithless Looting or something like that.
0: Yeah, and in, in in some cases, countering a Hogak is really not bad either, because occasionally the Hogak player will just carve out their own graveyard to cast a Hogak, so they'll really struggle recasting it if you counter it.
2: Yeah, I'll counter it with my Essence Scatters. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So what kind of decks are we
1: seeing people bring to tournaments to try to sort of either beat Hogak to the punch or interact with it in ways that it finds too difficult to overcome? I mean, I think we're seeing some really fast stuff, like In Fact... Uh, maybe some devoted druid combos that can win on turn three, uh, Mono red phoenix type builds that can win on turn three. I know that we we saw we've been seeing a lot of those in the Magic Online tournaments. I think humans can still get the job done. I kind of steamrolled humans, but I also think that they just weren't getting like their meddling mages um, or their like their phantasmal images to copy my hogax and things like that. So. I think, and also, yeah, like Deputy of Detention can grab like a bunch of zombie tokens and stuff like that too. So that's not a bad thing as well. I want to ask you two, is it Phoenix players, about why you think it still has such a foothold in the metagame right now. Is it something that can just go toe-to-toe with it? Or is it something that the new cards like Aria of Flame and... and uh, Lava Dart, just give it some more
2: power. Dave, you want
0: me to start?
1: You want to take a stab? Uh, yeah,
2: you're way more versed on Is It Phoenix than I am at this point.
0: So, the thing about Is It Phoenix is that I think to highlight one of the reasons why Is It Phoenix is still good, we'll touch on something we haven't really talked about with Hogak yet, which is that Hogak has a fail rate. You know, sometimes you get these awkward hands where you can't really cast anything because they're full of Hogaks and Bridge Vines that are doing either nothing on the board or you don't have enough cards in your graveyard to delve out, hogak, whatever. And in those situations where you're at a you know basic stalemate, the Phoenix deck will always execute its plan, right? It's super consistent in that regard. So I think in some cases, if both decks are just goldfishing, I think Phoenix is a little bit more reliable in getting its pieces out, going through its deck faster and executing its plan. Likewise, I think it's really important to remember that Thing in the Ice is super powerful. It's an excellent blocker, Um, not to mention like, uh, you know, I don't know if you necessarily need to block if you've just flipped an Awoken Horror. But also like bouncing back all of those zombie tokens, if the opponent doesn't have a sack outlet for them, might just spell game over by itself. Uh, The other thing worth noting is, like, in some cases, the Hogak player might start milling out the Phoenix player before they can finish the game. And that also plays into the Phoenix player's plan. So last thing I guess I can mention is that Phoenix is playing main deck surgicals these days and might continue to do that as long as either Phoenix, Dredge, Hogak, or other graveyard strategies are in the meta. So having some main deck answers as well as a really proactive strategy Makes this deck, you know, still a very viable contender in the meta with or without Hogak. But having an okay matchup against Hogak, I think, gives it some extra legs too. Yeah,
2: I think it's also a big help that it can win win at instant speed. You know, if you have happen to have Aria out and you have a grip of cards, you you have an ability to kill them on their turn if they're going going off basically between lightning bolts and other triggers. If you happen to get there and they're having a little bit of a slow game, so that that helps a little bit too.
0: Yeah, I wonder if phoenix would have had as much of a game against this deck before aria was printed and whether they could still do instant speed stuff with a pyromancer's ascension and like doubling up on cantrips and lightning bolts but i guess we don't have to really worry about that question
1: so did you all actually enjoy playing this deck because i'm not sure that i did i want to hear your opinions i'll
2: go first since i played bridgevine before i really enjoyed playing bridgevine last year and i feel like the new angle on the deck made it a lot less fun to pilot it's it's a, it's in some ways the plan is much more clear about what i should be doing every game and the kill is really laborious to do with ultra dementia you have to make sure you don't make any tiny mistakes and stack up all these triggers and you know i think stan will mention this but it seems like it would be an impossible deck to play in paper um i just didn't really it, it you know when I was playing Bridgevine last year, I was really hoping that they would I would find a way to make the deck more consistent. And what happened is it got more consistent and it got too good. Like it just sort of got too broken as a result of getting just a tiny bit more consistent. So and it did it in a really boring way. So I think I uh, I couldn't easily say I didn't really enjoy playing this deck after 20 matches too. I did four leagues with it.
0: Yeah, Dave spent so much time asking if he could. He didn't really spend enough time asking if he should.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'll really echo that. This generally isn't the type of deck I play. You know, Phoenix is the closest I've ever come in my history as a modern player piloting a graveyard deck. And this was, like, just kind of lame. I never really felt like a lot of my decisions mattered. I kind of just was setting up turns where the deck played itself or i'd have to resign to the fact that the deck sort of fizzled out and there wasn't anything i can do um i guess the one thing i did enjoy about playing this online was the broken turns where i'm making a million tokens and generating a lot of triggers it was kind of neat seeing like all these triggers go across the screen, and I think that's what Dave is alluding to. Where if I'm <laughs> playing this in paper, I suspect that I'd probably be losing a lot more from missed triggers that MTGO does a good job of keeping track for me.
2: Yeah, and I, this is especially apparent in the the mirror match where you end up trying to sacrifice your creatures in response to your opponent. Act, sacrificing creatures so that they can get tokens off of their bridge from belows, But then you try to get rid of their bridge from belows by sacking your stuff. It's, it's a crazy like layering of triggers there. And then at the end, you resolve like 35 triggers and they get two zombie tokens. Cause that was all that was at the bottom of the chain.
1: <laughs> Stan, I have to say, I have to disagree with your statement that your decisions didn't matter because I actually find it found it quite hard to play well. I don't think it's anywhere nearly as easy to play in a busted way like Dredges. Like I think there's a, a lot more sequencing and onboard like, trick decisions to make. It's not really quite as autopilot as Dredges for me, but I do agree that I still found it pretty dull even when it was working and frustrating when it wasn't. And... So that was just not you know my favorite thing to be playing
2: recently. Um, I feel like I should be apologizing when I'm playing it. I should be like, I'm so I'm sorry. This is gonna take eight minutes for me to get through this milk hill. Yeah, like I was
1: playing versus an opponent, and I was like. You know, we don't have to sit through this. I'm, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just testing this deck out for my podcast. I swear. Oh, you have to drop and the podcast like, <laughs> in the chat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and the opponent was like, I actually just want to see how this works. Yeah. So we were both, I was like, we're both learning. Yeah. <laughs> but do you guys think that this is a problem? Like, do you think this deck is a problem? Like, I just, I have to call this out. Like, I caught this on my rewatch through the GP stream, and Maria Bartoldi is interviewing Tom Ross on the floor. And Tom Ross says, We tried to make a commander card. That's why it has legendary. And we tried to make it a fun build around. We didn't anticipate it to be as strong as it is. Oof. And my jaw just dropped. Yeah. It just reinforced my concept like this was just more of a mistake than a design. I decision. think he
2: probably got an email from Blake after that. I'm just going to say, like, that <laughs> seems like a bad little someone who needs a little PR training. Um, yeah. But.
1: I mean it's just like you we see this evidence of this warped format right now and the deck building is taking place. I don't think this is really a sustainable place. Like I mentioned before, I mean you you and you and uh Dave, you and Stan made a good point about maybe this is just kind of the format that modern is and we have to kind of accept that. But I think that you combine the graveyard centricity of it with the hard to interact mill combo of the deck and you're going to have frustrated players. Yeah and i'm I'm really fully of the belief that if this these tournaments happened like the first week of modern horizons uh modern that Hogek would have taken at least half the top eights because people weren't gonna be prepared for it, like they you know like we saw early on in the modern online the magic online
2: leagues, so I don't know, I think it's a problem, and I think the reason it's a problem is because the kill is not interactive it, the the most powerful version of the kill is anyway. I think if this was just a deck yeah. where you flooded the board with creatures a a dredge it would be not that bad. You know what I mean? Because people would work their way around it. The metagame would adapt to make, you know, there would be some decks that where creature attacking is not that good. And you would just kind of go from there. But I just think that this is a little bit like, um, you know, K- Altered Dimension is a bit like KCI in the sense that it's really hard to interact with the timing of how to, to stop it. Yes. Yes. The a problem. I don't know what's going to happen, but,
0: I have a really hard time assessing what's a problem and what isn't, especially because I think there is a delta between the online meta and the paper meta, as well as the tournament meta and the LGS meta. So, for instance, I played in a 1K over the weekend, and there was one Hogak player in the room, and I mean, he was IDing into the top eight, which might say something about the deck and this player's proficiency with it, but it's not like... It's everywhere. I don't think most modern players really have to worry about it. They might want to start packing graveyard hate because there's an increasing number of decks that care about graveyards. But, you know, until it's getting to the point where it's ruining coverage and it's ruining LGSs and tournaments and MTGO leagues, like, let players figure solutions out. Let the developers or R&D print new cards that help solve the problem too. I don't want to sound the alarms after a month, but, you know, if if Watsy was watching me play this deck, they would be like, oh, it's not that great because people are losing with it left and right. But, you know, that also has something to say with the fact that I necessarily didn't exactly know what I was doing half the time.
1: Right on. Yeah, I think it's one of those things we'll, we'll see. Like we said last week, for the LGS metagame, we're still going to see this many of the same things we always have, so... I think
0: the most important thing to note is when we were doing our set review, we kept saying, can I interest you in Bridgevine for like half the cards that are in this deck?
1: Yeah, way to go, Dave. And, and
0: one, Stan. But once yeah. again, we nailed it. All right. So after we've uh, patted ourselves on the back sufficiently, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we return, we are going to ask some esoteric questions about randomness and modern and magic at large. Stay with us. So one of the coolest perks to being a Dive Dine patron is joining our super secret Slack channel where we're constantly talking about magic and modern. And
1: Stan, if you keep talking about it, it's not really a secret, is it?
0: (laughs) Well, it's only a secret because people who don't pay us don't know what we're talking about. Except now. Because over the weekend, we had a brief conversation with some of our patrons, uh, Joe, Craig, people, you know, other people tuned in as well. But we were talking about the role of randomness in magic. And, you know, the three of us podcasters on the show today decided this was an interesting conversation to talk about in our wind down as well, because it's, you know, attention in a lot of games.
2: Yeah. And also, specifically, this came up in the context of Hogak being good in a deck like this that requires a certain combination of cards to, to really go to be good. I think that's where kind of Craig was inspired to come up with the discussion. Um, but I think this goes to some different places that aren't just about combo decks like this.
0: And one of the things that I'd like to frame this conversation with is that both Richard Garfield and Mark Rosewater will sometimes say that magic is meant to be a cross between chess which is a strategy game with no variance, no randomness, and Poker, which is a card game that does have quite a bit of variance and randomness basically designed into the game. So they're both testing your skill as a player and a competitor, but also, you know, testing your ability to both manage a game plan in lieu of the fact or in spite of the fact that there is some randomness that's going to affect what you're able to do over the course of a single game. Sure. Sure.
1: Yeah, so is is the, the idea, you know, is magic random enough or do you think that it should be less
2: random, right? I mean, I think that's up, up to you. Like, how do you feel about the randomness that you experience in magic?
1: I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, Rosewater touches on especially is that randomness is really important to the majority of the player's gaming experience with magic. And I agree with that because, you know, randomness gives players who aren't as skilled a better chance to win. And I think that's really important for player retention. And I think that's probably one of the more important things to the game's health in general is that, you know, we want Wizards of the Coast to have a reason to put so much effort into making awesome cards and awesome sets that people want to buy. And people are going to only want to buy cards if they enjoy the game. Right. So I think that if there were like, you know, win rates that were skewed to something like 80 to 20% in favor of the more skilled player, Rather than something like 60 40, which I think is probably maybe a fair balance. Like if you're playing, play, having a skilled player against a less skilled player, maybe that's, a, that's kind of the, if everything else is being equal, that's what will happen. I think that people are much happier um, overall with that kind of percentage. What do you think?
2: I mean, I think that that's totally true. And I think that, you know, there's so many mechanics and magic that help. That balance kind of return to the mean in some ways. Whether that's mana screw, whether that's putting together certain um, certain combinations of cards, you know, limiting decks that do really broken things because it's hard to draw the combination of of cards that you have that you need to make it happen. Um, I I think that that's it's totally true that randomness is important to games that have large player bases because they create exciting moments for people to come back you know you get that tension of am i going to get the card i need and then you get it and then it's a great story to tell your friends and you have that whole kind of success bias where sometimes you forget all the times that you missed but the one time that you drew the card that you were looking for was so awesome that that memory just sticks and so it it helps in making a really compelling experience for people of all different levels
0: Do you guys ever feel that maybe randomness is something that rewards newer players, but then exists as a detriment to more enfranchised
1: players? I think, Stan, I think that you're going to get different answers depending on who you ask, right? Like, I think that's a reason that many pros don't love modern as a competitive format, because they see it as something where they're not able to leverage their skill as highly, because... The, the decks are frequently so fast and so powerful and the sideboards are so small against like such a large field that they're not able to really, you know, showcase their skill. But I think that I think you're right, Stan, in that it helps with onboarding a lot. And I think it kind of gets back to what I said earlier, right? It's like if some new new player is going to lose like, you know, eighty percent of their games, they're not going to want to stick around.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I have a slightly different take here, which is randomness is existence is fundamentally connected to the fabric of the game right and so a new player experiences it through the idea of hey i want a game oh i want a game i was way behind oh this thing happened that seemed really improbable uh, an experienced player will look at at randomness as a tool that they can leverage to be able to change the conditions of the game to increase their odds of success, right? And so that's where you really become a skilled player where you understand the mathematical constraints of the situation that you're in. You can evaluate your outs, as they say, and start crafting your game plan to the out that has the best percentage chance of happening. And that is a skill that I think many people spend their entire magic careers trying to hone. And, you know, I... I don't want to digress too much, but as a person who's played magic for a long time and a person who's played poker and things like that and thought about this a lot, you know, that interface with randomness and trying to figure out how to c- construct a game plan that takes advantage of randomness has been really fundamental to like my worldview as a person in a lot of ways, where I now think about man- mitigating risk and managing risk against random occurrences or things that are out of my control. Um, through that lens of trying to build a plan that has the best outcome possible that I can can get to through random occurrence of events. I know that's a weird place to take it in some ways, but I really do a lot of times when I think about things in my job and think about things that people I work with might do or say or the way the project might go. I'm always trying to figure out where can we take this plan so that we have the best chance of having the best outcome happen.
0: Right, Dave. And this is why I tell you, never leave the house without Leyline of the Void. Because you never know when it's going to come in handy at work, at the grocery store, at the dog pound.
2: I don't like that these prices went up, Leyline of the Void.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, Dave, that was super astute. Uh, I had some other stuff I wanted to add, but I don't think I should. That was, was perfect.
2: Thank you
0: all right well thank you gentlemen for a really great conversation not only on randomness but on hogak i don't know about you but i'm excited to never have to pilot the deck again but at the same time i feel like i can maybe beat it if i have to if i ever have to play it or against it
2: i'm leaving the door open i didn't like it but i might play it again we'll see
0: in any case that wraps up this week's show If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating or review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at thedivedown, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. If you'd like to support the show, check out our Patreon over at patreon.com thedivedown. And keep an eye on our Twitter, because we're going to be posting pictures of some of our Patreon perks in the days and weeks to come. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, please ban Pogak!